The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Augustine. How do you pronounce it? Augustine or Augustine? Who is for who is for August? How? Pardon? Oh, depends. I see. Now, how many how many Augustines? Down. How many Augustines? Now, the truth of the matter is, Saint Augustine is in Florida. Saint Augustine is in heaven. <laughs> That's not original. <laughs> but that's what I was told, and I imagine there's some truth in that. Well, we have dealt yes we dealt yesterday with the early church father with with Justin Martyr and with his attempt to bring the Christian outlook of things, the Christian philosophy to his philosophical friends, and that he wasn't too successful. He has an apology, two apologies in a matter of fact, and then he has one that in which he deals with Trifo, the Jew, and in both cases, the big mistake that we have seen that Justin makes is that he concedes too much, that he is not willing to claim that the Greek position or the Old Testament position without Christ is a position that's built on man and on a false interpretation of the facts of the world and on a principle of unity that is not derived from God. Now, we have seen Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, and then we saw that in Tertullian you begin to get something much better because of the fact that Tertullian says that you must live by your own reserve, uh, on your own resources. You must take from your principle of faith, which is faith in the scriptures as the revelation of God through Christ, your theory of God, your theory of man, your theory of the world. And then he says, what hath communion hath Jerusalem with Athens. Now that means that he is introducing the question of authority in much more proper fashion than anybody before him did. And at the same time, he worked up the Trinity idea, that is, it's in the scriptures, but the terminology that we still employ with respect to the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the three persons on a par with one another, equal in power and in glory, we get that terminology from Tertullian in the first place. So what we see, two steps tremendously, uh, taking two steps ahead forward toward a right Christian approach and a right Christian apologetics is that we now have the recognition of the principle of authority as the source from which we get our light and our life and the doctrine of the Trinity so that God is the triune God. God is not an abstract universal. When Justin Martyr and when Irenaeus were reasoning with the Greeks, they said, our God is the same as your God. He is the anonymous, the unknowable, the unknown one. And we only add to what you have, and therefore we, have, we are Christians in addition to being theists. We're monotheists, you are monotheists, we are in addition to that. We have the knowledge of Christ. Now, and then we saw that we have the two 
We have the two Alexandria, Alexandrians, Clement of Alexandria, and Origen. And we saw that in the case of both of those, they are, they are virtually building on Greek philosophy. And in the case of Origen, of whom we didn't say very much, you have the father is above, the son, well, the son is lower, and then the Holy Spirit <laughs> is lower again. That is, there is subordinationism. Now, it is that scale of being idea which comes from the Greeks, you see. We all, as human beings, are in the Father. We all, as rational beings, are in the Son. We all, as regenerate beings, are in the Spirit. But there, one is lower than the other. Now, that is why Origen, who writes this famous book on first principles, which is the first systematic theology that was ever written, does not give us a, a good guidance as to how to go. He is, it's all compromise. It's all confusion, basically, for all his learning. He reduces his, the free will doctrine. How does he explain that? Well, in the way that Plato did. Somehow, we have dropped off from from the divine existence we existed before this world we have a pre-existence where therefore our knowledge is memory it is memory not self-conscious memory but subconscious memory we were part of divinity we've dropped off we've fallen we're a chip off the old block we're floating around in the ocean of chance now immortality is to be frozen back into this hard block of ice now that argument for immortality you see is the same to all intents and purposes as is the argument that Plato has now now comes Augustine after all this and you can see what St. Augustine's contribution really is and what a magnificent man of God he was I think there is nothing quite so rewarding for anyone as a spiritual for your own personal spiritual growth and grace and understanding of things than to re read the life of St. Augustine. Now, you can get wonderful instruction on that from B.B. Warfield, who has uh, Augustine and Tertullian, a book on Augustine and Tertullian. You can get it from others, but of course you can always also read their, his own writings. Now, some of them are fairly speculative and philosophical, and you might at first find it a little difficult going. Now, I want to try to show you how this thing develops in Augustine's own life. Now, Augustine was, as you know, born as a Christian mother, Monica, and a pagan father. He lived as a child in North Africa, and he led what he later speaks of as a pretty loose life. Actually, we don't, by modern standards, it wasn't loose at all, but certainly by his conscience, it was a loose life. But he was, after a while, as you know, converted. Then he was already grown up. Now, then when he had been converted, you remember the story of his being in the garden, in his own house, of his own house, and that he heard behind him, as he thought a voice, uh, Tala Lega, pick up and read, which meant pick up your Bible and read, and he read. Uh, do not spend your life in wantonness and chambering and all kinds of looseness. Now that struck him and it struck him hard and he was genuinely converted in, his, in the depth of his being. 
Now after this he loves the Lord with intensity of soul, with such intensity as perhaps scarcely anybody has ever lived. There is no greater genius in the history of the Christian church, presumably, unless it be John Calvin in some respects. Now you say, oh, well, you're a Calvinist, aren't you? Obviously, yes. But uh, it is not I alone that would say that. There are plenty of people who aren't Christians at all that would agree with this judgment. Only their judgment would incline primarily to St. Augustine because he had a little more paganism left in him than, than, uh, than Calvin did, of course. Well, all right, taller leg he took up. What did he see in the Bible? Well, he saw that he was a creature of God. He saw that he was a sinner before God. He saw that he was saved from sin through Jesus Christ. He saw that he was on the way to glory. He believed the story of salvation. In other words, the history of redemption out there in the world, in Palestine. And his own participation in it, he personally, was now taken up into that redemptive history. And he was on the way upward unto glory. And what joy there was in his heart in knowing this. But now what's to be done? Well, you see, he had been up to this time reading the skeptics. And how is knowledge possible? And uh, he had been busy with that as a student in his philosophy courses. And then he had read the Manichaeans. And the Manichaeans, as you know, were dualists. They said there are two principles, one of good and one of evil. Now, you remember that Plato was really a Manichaean in the sense that he was this type of dualist also, namely, that Plato said, here's good and there's evil, and then God is the source of the good, and God is not the source of evil, so there must be, next to God in the other world, a principle of evil that is the source of the evil in this world. Now, that was dualism in the other world as well as in this world. And you remember that Aristotle said, what in the world is the use of introducing that world of ideas if it doesn't solve your problem, if you've got the same problems breaking up there, breaking out there again that you have here? And of course, Aristotle was right negatively in his criticism. The platonic world of ideas didn't help an iota or tittle for the solution of his problems. And of course, basically, that was true. But you see, Plato was usually understood as being not a dualist, but being a monist, one who has solved all things in terms of one unified principle. And that unified principle is the good. Well, that means that you have the principle of the good, the good above all else. And all being down here is being participant in that ultimate being. And as it has being, it has goodness in it. All being is good being. Now, for us, that would mean the devil's being is good being. The devil's got being, hasn't he? And therefore, there can't be an absolute devil in this scheme. There can't be absolute evil. I told you the other day that Augustine said he'd rather be a fly than not be at all because a fly doesn't have much being and the being that the fly hasn't isn't awfully attractive sort of being and he buzzes around your head. But just the same, he'd rather have that much being than be deprived of being. Non-being is negative, is defective being in practice. Well, what happens to the fly when my wife comes with a fly swatter? Now, but you see, there is nobody with a big fly swatter that can knock you out of being. You can't be reduced to absolute non-being. You can have defective being. Non-being is 
less and less being, but that goes on ever deeper and goes on down into infinity. Now, therefore, evil is never an absolute evil. It can't be an absolute evil, because to be evil, you still have to be. And so long as you be and have any being, you are also still good being, because being is good. Now, that is the Platonic unity. Now, what happens to Augustine as he first in his early days finds the skeptics? Now, let us look again at the four schools of philosophy as they obtained in the early period of this time. There were the Platonists. There were the Aristotelians, with whom we've dealt with. There were the Stoics, and there were the Epicureans. Now, what was the difference between them? The, the nice part of it is that there is no difference between them at this stage anymore. Very much now, you have the Church of Christ here. Now, I wouldn't say, of course, there's no difference here, but of our way, it makes very little difference whether you see a Presbyterian church or a Methodist church or a Baptist church. So far as they're all liberal, you see, they've all been streamlined, and they're all conscientized. And so they're all in Christ, and it doesn't make a speck of difference except the externals anymore. Well, now, these have all become skeptic, all of them, without exception. The Platonists and the Aristotelians and the Stoics, they were all, without exception, skeptical. There was no knowledge, and you remember that the Sophist has said, look, if there is no knowledge, then man is the measure, and then we, for practical purposes, can still have something in the way of laws that we make ourselves and we agree to live up to, not to kill each other off too often and too much, and also to leave, live a decent, ordinary, suburban life for practical purposes. But not because there is, in reality, in Fusain, anything like an object of truth or an object of goodness. There isn't that. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Well, that being the case, we're all skeptical, and one position is certainly no better than any other. Well, now, it was this into which, of course, the early Christians came. Now, Wendelbant, the great historian of philosophy, speaks of this period as therefore ethical. Now, ethical is, a, uh, is, in this case, a little bit difficult to understand because what we ordinarily mean by ethical is the question of moral or behavior, but that's not what it refers to. It means that there is no knowledge of the nature of things, metaphysics, therefore there is ethics. That is to say, a question of behavior. We have it since Kant, we'll come to that. That is to say, since, as Kant says, nobody knows anything about the world, therefore with our practical reason, which is ethical, that is, the, the will is free, even though you cannot metaphysically establish the freedom of the will or even the existence of any such thing as an independent will, for practical purposes you say that you are free. So you have general ethicism and general skepticism. Now, it is this stage of the development of philosophy and thinking into which, of course, St. Augustine comes. Now, he, he gets this in class, just as you, in college classes, so to speak, and he gets it in all his training, this universal skepticism. Now there were the Manichaeans, and they said, well, we have more unity and experience than that. We, to be sure, don't have or don't pretend to have uh, a comprehensive one, nobody can have that, but we've got 
a pretty decent philosophy better than skepticism. We've got a good and we've got an evil principle. And uh, I would say it's very much like Paul Tillich's philosophy. I heard Paul Tillich in the Unitarian Church one time preaching in Philadelphia. Of course, you can read his books too. But I heard him preach in which he says, well, sin is something much deeper than a personal wrong that you do or I do individually. Sin is a the demonic, it's deeper, it's more fundamental than any of us can reach down and fix up. But, Aber, the joy of it is that salvation is also greater than any person needs to accomplish, and that's Christ. And the good, the salvation, is always more inclusive and the later and the more final thing than is the evil. And so, though we are overwhelmed by the super personal demonic we are still more overwhelmed by the super personal good which envelops all now finally we get that of course also in Karl Barth now this these Manichaeans were there and Augustine heard about them and Faustus who was the great teacher of the Manichaeans and he didn't live in town but Faustus was coming to town and every all the students were so happy that Faustus was coming to town. He would solve all problems for them, you see. And so Faustus came to town and he started lecturing. And so Augustine was sitting in his class and though he was very respectful and decent, but he knew and he saw very clearly that Faustus did not answer questions. Finally, don't you see, that Faustus had no answer if this is good and if that is evil and if the world is chaos. Why should there be a good that overcomes evil? On what rational basis can you say that there's a unity in experience and that that unity is overall and that that is good and that the good will be supreme over evil? There is no answer to my sin problem. His conscience bothered him. He had lived what he thought was a dissolute life. He must have an answer for the problem of his misbehavior, how he could live with himself and with his own conscience. Well, he had no answer to this, and now he finally gets the answer. Tala Lega, and he reads and he discovers in Christ of the Scriptures, there is the forgiveness for his sin. He's a deeper sinner than he's ever dreamed of being, than, than a metaphysical lowness in the scale of being, or he now sees that he has something better. But prior to this, he reads Plato, and he reads Plotinus, after he reads Faustus, the Manichaean. And now he tells us in his confessions that Plato and Plotinus, but he refers to Plato, they brought unity. Here was duality, you see, but Plato brought unity. And that, he thought, was a tremendous advance over the dualism that he'd had. And so he was quite happy and quite deeply moved by the unity of thinking that Plato and Plotinus, who carries out Plato's point of view most consistently in the latest of them, that they brought him something, he says, they brought me unity, but they still did not bring me Christ, he says. They did not bring me salvation for my heart. My conscience still troubled me. So though he realized that, as he thought he did, that he was getting some help from these Platonic Plotinian philosophers who had an overarching principle of unity. He realized, after all, he began to sense that that was a form and that evil was down here. 
And that the moccasins, the water moccasins, were just as plentiful still down here, and that you had to have a pistol with you, and every time you went fishing and you had to shoot them, and just when you were catching a fish and intent on catching that, there was a little water moccasin that was biting you in the heel. Now, that's purely imaginary. That sort of thing doesn't happen here, does it? Uh, well, or anywhere. Well, uh, the point is that I'm trying to make is that he felt that the principle, the problem of evil had not been solved, even by Platonism and all of that. Nevertheless, he attributes to Platonism the ability to solve the problem of the one and the many first in a provisional way. Now, of course, that was a fundamental mistake on his part. But that was when he was going through at this stage. Chang and Ang, you remember, there were these, twi these Siamese twins, and they had one principle of life, and they lived, two of them, together, and yet they were one. When there was an operation performed, the one died, had died in the operation, there was an excision had to be made, and the other one soon after that died. Now, which principle in Augustine is going to live, Chang or Ang? Neoplatonism or Christianity? Of course Christianity is going to live. And Neoplatonism, Platonism and Plotinianism is going to die. But it's a tremendous struggle. It's a tremendous struggle. And that's why it's so valuable for us to live through it and to see it, how it acted in him. If it gets a hold of you, you may not go through the same struggle. You've had the advantage of a much greater and more, you've had the advantage of the fact that Augustine lived and you could stand on his shoulders, that Luther lived, that Calvin lived, and that Abraham Kuyper lived, that Warfield lived, and you can stand on their shoulders, and with their help, you may not have to go through the same trial and terrific struggle that he went through. Nevertheless, it's of value, great value, I think, to live through it in our thinking. Now, what happens then? He says at the beginning, he goes off after his conversion. He goes off with Adeodatu with his son, the God-given one, and he goes off to Katiakium, which was a little private country place, he and a few men with him, and they did their cooking by themselves. They didn't have any women around the place, just like the boys and I do our cooking by ourselves over here, and it's so much better than to have women around the place. You get your eggs fried exactly the way you like. <laughs> just exactly you want what you want you just order it and this boy fixes them for you <laughs> so they were there at Cassiopeum and his son was there and several other men were there and they were there a couple years together and they must see through this problem together and they were talking and they were arguing and they were reading as much as there was to be read and so one of the uh writings in which he expresses himself, the soliloquies, is his first major writing in which he soliloquizes, he speaks with himself. Well, here is reason, and here is Augustine, and Augustine, he, he personalizes reason, and he addresses reason, and the reason talks back to him. Now, the point that he is making at this stage is that you have to have reason if you are to discover truth, you must already have reason within you. And that's what reason says to him. If, and this is pure Platonism. 
You see, he's first trying to solve his problems of the one and the many, skepticism, dualism. What he's trying to do is to solve it by means of the principle of abstract reason, which is in every human being, which is innate, which is the platonic reminiscence theory of truth. So reason says to Augustine, what do you want to know? Well, I want to know whether God exists. You see, he knows as a believer that God exists. He knows that through Christ, the Redeemer, through the regenerating power of the Spirit. But as a thinker and as a philosopher, he wants to find out whether God exists in the sense whether he can prove it to himself by reason without revelation. Well, so he says, reason and here arguing. How shall we proceed? Well, we can't proceed unless we already presuppose that we have reason within us. Reason says to him, Augustine, you know very well that if you, if I were not dwelling in you, if I were not within you as an eternal universal principle, you couldn't even ask the question whether I exist. And so it is this basic point, you see, that he starts with, this Platonism that reason must be within man and that is therefore the thing now that he starts with now this famous expression is see follower soon even if I am mistaken it is I who am mistaken and therefore it is I who am here now whom does that remind you of Descartes cogito ergo sum I must be because I couldn't think, even if I were deceived. And that's the way he puts it. Even if I am self-deceived, it is still I that am self-deceived, and therefore it is I that am here. As self-deceived, to be sure, but it is still proof, the best possible proof, that I can't even be wrong without myself being here. Now he applies that also to the idea of God. He says, if God doesn't exist, then it is still God that doesn't exist, and therefore it is God that doesn't exist, and therefore God does exist. Now, how does that sound? <laughs> Just listen to it again. If God does not exist, that's the skeptic position. Suppose you skeptics are right, don't you see? Then you have to admit that we're talking about God, and you couldn't even say of anything else that it doesn't exist, except in the existence of God term of existence of God. It is still God that doesn't exist, and therefore it is God that does exist. Now, this is precisely the whole foundation of Karl Barth's theology, namely that God is wholly revealed and wholly hidden both, and that God is in every human being, or there wouldn't be any human beings. That is his universalistic motif, which is so prominent in all his thinking. Go ahead. This thing about about Karl Barth and if all of this all of this is revealed in Karl Barth's teaching, and I agree with that, then there is a total impersonality. Is correct? Finally, yes. I'll come back to Karl Barth more fully to justify what I say from the evidence. I'm just throwing it in suggestion-wise now. That's all I meant to do. Well, see, follow or soon. Now, 
the thing that I'm interested in at this point is to indicate to you what is the usual interpretation in the histories of philosophy, such as Wendelbant, for instance. You may know Wendelbant's famous book, The History of Philosophy, or Hanach's, the theologian's famous book, The History of Christian Doctrine, a famous philosopher and a famous modern theologian. Now, what do they say? Well, look, here was Socrates. Now, we saw what Socrates said the other day. He wants to know what the good is. He wants to see that for himself, regardless of what God or men say about it. He wants, in his own independent self-consciousness, to have the criterion, the standard, by which he can say this is right or this is wrong. Independent. Now, that is the Socratic position. That's the Greek position. That's fallen man's position. God is under the good. He looks up to the good. He loves the good, to be sure. God is awfully good because he's very fond of goodness. He isn't the source of good. He doesn't say, do this and you shall live, and do that and you shall die. He isn't the one that sets the standards, but he looks up to the standards as above him. Well, now, that is Socrates. And here is Descartes. Cognito ergo sum, which means I certainly establish myself as the beginning point of all predication, whether that be about knowledge or about being or about goodness. In other words, then afterwards I conclude that God exists by the ontological argument. Then afterwards I conclude that God exists by the ontological argument. It says, I am not absolute, I am derivative, and therefore there must be a God who is absolute. Now that ontological proof for the existence of God is based in case of Descartes, of course, on the assumption that man is absolutely himself absolute, in the sense that he, is a, he has in himself a sufficient starting point. Now, that just isn't so if the Christian position is true, is it? Because then, you, then it is God who alone can say, cogito ergo sum, I am. And it is God who says to Moses, Tell the children of Israel, I am has sent you. And Jesus says, I am the, way, the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Self-identification in the Christian position, God in Christ alone makes self-identification. But here's the non-Christian position. Socrates thinks he can say cogito ergo sum. And then they say, well, now look here, between Socrates and Descartes stands Augustine. That's the way it goes. Si falor sum. Cogito ergo sum. I want to see the truth as it is in itself, says Socrates, regardless of what men or gods say about it. Now you can see from their point of view that's good sense, isn't it? But it is an absolute misinterpretation of Augustine's basic thinking. But there's some measure of justification for their misinterpreting it that way. Because at this stage of the game, that is virtually what Augustine is still thinking. Because he's still under the influence of Platonism and of Plotinianism. And in those philosophies, man is the center. And now he is, and this is why this is so instructive to us, I think, this is the type of thing that so many of us as Christians are struggling with. We're Christians in our hearts, and people you meet are Christians. They're evangelical Christians. But they think that they can, by means of a philosophy which isn't at all Christian, 
establish the truth of Christianity. That's, to me, the basic trouble with all so-called current neo-evangelicalism. They are trying so hard to do better than fundamentalism did. I don't want to get into this now, just in passing. But they are, in order to do better than fundamentalism, taking their cue from neo-orthodoxy itself. And so they can't help but being carried away with neo-orthodoxy frequently. Well, now, this is the way, Harnack, and so forth. Now, then you read Warfield, or you read Pullman if you read Dutch. Uh, if you don't read Dutch, you don't read him. <laughs> now, the point being is, according to Warfield, this is what's happening, Augustine. He is not that he has traced it in this way on this particular point in philosophy, but he has traced it on another point. Now, what is the case with Augustine? He's still first involved in Platonism with human autonomy, abstract form, truth by itself, which is inherent in everybody and everybody is in truth. And it is abstract truth, says Plato, by which I measure things in this world. How could I see that one thing is taller than another thing unless there is tallness up there as a standard? How could I use a yardstick over here in Jackson, Mississippi or in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania unless there were in Washington, D.C., the absolute yardstick? In other words, somewhere. Now, we have it, fortunately, on Earth here in Washington, D.C., where all truth subsides. <laughs> this and all of that. Uh, don't get wrong ideas. I'm not going to tell you what political party I've been in. But the point that I'm interested in making is that there is an absolute eternal changeless truth according to Platonism and Pliny. And this is what at this early stage Augustine is still enveloped in and he's trying the impossible to prove the truth of Christianity in terms of a philosophy. If you accepted it, you would disprove it. Now, he is, on this basis then, he is, Augustine is between Socrates and Descartes. And then, of course, you go on beyond, beyond Descartes to Kant and then to the modern ones. Well, now, what Warfield says and what Pullman also says is this. The unreal thing, the leftover thing, the chang, the dying part of Augustine, that body of death, which is as an incubus upon his back, as an albatross, which he regrets having to carry on as though you had a stinking body of yourself hanging on your back as you're walking. Don't you see what a horrible experience it is to live in sin and with sin all your life as a believer, as a Christian who wants to be with Christ and to live in Christ and by his principle. Well, don't you see, he is trying to be a one, a two-circle person in his thinking as he is in his heart. And so this is the thing that is gradually emerging, that he sees that it is in Christ that he has the solution of all intellectual as well as of all moral problems, and that therefore he must get rid of this supposed inwardness. This is the principle of inwardness on the Wendelbaum position. There's one three-volume book by Richard Croner on speculation and revelation in philosophy, which is an excellent book. If you don't have it, buy it. And if you can't buy it, borrow it. And if you can't borrow it, steal it. <laughs>
but get it. Now, I once said that in my class, and sometime later, a year or two later, a woman said to me, you mustn't tell those boys to steal. Uh, I hope you will take this allegorically or symbolically. Well, Richard Croner has a book in which he brings this out. And Richard Croner is still living in Philadelphia. He is a great expert in modern philosophy. He came through Hitler's maneuvers. He came to New York and taught for years at Union Seminary. Then he taught after his retirement in Philadelphia at Temple University. I think, Mr. Bodie, you know whom I'm speaking of. You maybe know him personally. Well, now, he has this three-volume work. But you see, he is, of course, a new modern or new neo-orthodox type of thinker and consequently though he's very well acquainted with all orthodox thinking it is this side that he basically favors and therefore he has the essential conscient position this world of science is the i it dimension religion is in the i thou dimension and there's where augustine was and there's where socrates was and there's where kant was and therefore kant is the philosopher of protestantism for him well, we'll come to that also briefly. Now, these two interpretations, types of interpretation, are worth keeping apart because they, you see, are run through the whole history of philosophy. If a man is committed to this Socratic position and to this uh, Cartesian or Kantian position, then you, they will interpret and misinterpret Augustine interiority, his principle of inwardness. I must be aware myself of my own existence because I cannot think of my non-existence. Now then, th at the same time, he has this statement, De omet animum sciere cupio. He says to reason, God and the soul I want to know. Alone I want to know. And reason says to him, nothing else? Nihil plus then? Nihil plus, nothing else. Now, what would you take that statement of his to mean? Is that Platonism or is that Christianity? Or in which, which one of those two overweighs or overbalances in this case? What does he mean, God and the soul? Isn't that good? Is that good? Of course it's good. But it is Platonism. Because in the circumstances, you see, that means I don't care to know about the world. The world is the world of non-existence. It is of a subsidiary half-existence. That's what Plato said. And Plato said it because, don't you see, Parmenides has said, if you really think logically, then you must think of all reality as one eternal, changeless being, and consequently this world of change and of time hasn't any real being. And therefore, now that he's a Christian, when Augustine should have seen this world as a manifestation of the glory of God, and that's why I said Calvin is certainly a lot further along in this, when Calvin stresses what Paul teaches, that every fact in the universe, in it the face of God speaks to you, it reveals God, and clearly your own constitution reveals God as your creator. In other words, Calvin, page one, sentence one, to know myself, I must know myself as a creature of God, as a sinner before God, as a forgiven sinner through the blood of Christ, something to that effect. At least the big point is 
that I must never know my little circle unless I at the same time know the big circle and I know the little circle in terms of the big circle. Not as enveloping the big circle, not pantheism, not monism, but as a creature dependent, lit up by the plan of that God and believing and accepting on his authority what I am and what I am ethically and what I've done and what needs to be done for me if I am to be saved from the wrath to come. You must start with that, says Calvin. Now, Augustine hasn't anywhere near come to this position. He is still saying, essentially, he says, God and the soul. Here's God. And now, here's my soul. You remember that for Plato, the intellect is divine. And you have, besides the intellect, you have, of course, emotions and will, and what's under the midriff relates Ulysses to the foxes. Aristotle says man is a rational animal. He has animality in it, in him, in him, and then he has rationality. And the rationality is what makes man to be man. Well, that's Plato's position. What's above the midriff, the intellect, that's primary. That relates you to the deity, that makes you part of deity. It is that why you, that is why you know. That's why knowledge is anamnesis, remembrance. That's why immortality is deformity, being taken back. Now, what happens to what's under the midriff? Well, that passes back into non-being. Of course, that's, uh, there is no resurrection of the body. Do you remember when Socrates was about to drink, drink the hemlock cup and he was conversing with his disciples about what would happen after this life? When they talk about immortality, then they are not talking about the resurrection of the body. Not what Paul speaks of, that our body shall be made conformable to his glorious body, according to the power with which he raised up Christ from the dead. But that the soul, the intellect, is part of that eternal principle, and that will be eternal. It has been eternal this way, and that's why it never was anything but eternal. It was just temporarily connected with this body, soma sema, the body of the tomb, and when the tomb drops off you, then you are released and you fly upward and you are again brought into union with and identity. Now that is what is involved in this business of deum et animam skira cupio nihilna, and any, nothing else is reason? Nihil plus, nihilna, he says. Nothing else? Nothing else. In other words, I don't care a hoot about God's glory manifest. Now, he did care a hoot. He cared everything. That God was manifest in history, in this world. That he had made transition from wrath to grace in history. Now, don't you see? But as a philosopher, as a Platonic thinker, he was virtually denying everything that he believed as a Christian. And yet he wasn't aware of that. Now, that problem, my friends, is going on in the hearts and minds of any number of evangelical Christian people. They do not know that the commitments to that principle which they claim to believe intellectually is utterly destructive of what as Christian, evangelical Christians, they are committed to in their hearts. Well now, deum et animum, credo ut intelligam, fides praesedit intellectum, the same thing. Now you all know this one, of course, credo ut intelligam, the name of Augustine is tied in with that. I believe that I may know. 
Now, that's a good Christian procedure, isn't it? Now, today it might also be a non-Christian procedure. Any number of people who are not evangelical Christians will say, oh, we all have to credo first. Even scientists have to credo. That is to say, they have basic assumptions to make about ultimate principles. Even the law of contradiction, they say, cannot be proved. It must be assumed. It must be believed before we can have knowledge. But what Augustine is beginning to mean by that is, I have been constantly saying that I must know before I can believe, that I must understand ultimately by principles that are within me so that I can see through them if I am to believe that God exists. Now I am virtually beginning to see the opposite. I must believe the two-circle position. And then if I believe that, then I can see what knowledge really is and what is proper for a man to undertake to know. Now, it isn't proper for a man to undertake to take these two circles like that and then put them in a square and then say they are known by means of principles of logic which reduce the uniqueness of each of them. Now, that is what nonetheless Platonism is or any non-Christian principle of logic is by logic, the law of contradiction, I legislate for what can be and cannot be. And then what cannot be, primarily, and the first thing, there cannot be creation out of nothing, out of, uh, out of nothing or into nothing. And there cannot be such a thing as, as uh, the two natures of God in Christ, the divine and the human nature, asingutos, atreptos, adiaretos, and achoristos. Dr. Young, I get credit for those four Greek adjectives. <laughs> Don't I? You see, our boys learned four Greek words. <laughs> All right, because you see, when by the time they get to the presbytery, the ministers who examine them, they've long since forgotten those words. And then they're greatly impressed if you know those Greek words and you can string them off fast. Asingutos, atreptos, adiatros, akaristos. And then it's Passive magna cum laude. <laughs> well, the point being that the Chalcedon Creed says the divine nature remains divine even when it is conjoined with the human nature, and the human nature remains human in its characteristics. There is not a mixture. There is not, as the Eutychian said, a divine turning over into the human. There is not, as the Nestorians said, two distinct persons which have no genuine and permanent union. Now, just in passing, referring to Bart again, Karl Barth says he has actualized Chalcedon, the incarnation. What does he mean by actualizing? Wiping it out. That is to say, by saying that it says, the, means the reverse of what it says because what happens in Christianity is that God does turn into the opposite of himself, which this confession says cannot happen. He says they were then under the control of Greek categories of thinking, and they legislated about the freedom of God, what God can and cannot do. Now, we must let God free to be what he wants to be. He's free to turn over into the opposite of himself. He says this literally. And he says, guns und God or the Ganicht, altogether and completely or not at all. Well, now that's what he means by actualizing 
Now that means conscientizing. That is to say, you now as this is the illustration he uses, orthodoxy had God up there like a body of water in the mountains, a lake up in the mountains. But what did, good did that lake do for the valley down below? Until somebody opened it up and then put irrigation ditches over here and brought that water down. Now I have put in irrigation ditches and I have opened up and I now say there is as gibt kein Gott an sich. There is no God in himself. As gibt kein decretum absolutum. There is no absolute decree such as orthodoxy said there was. God is what he is in his work, in his act. God is what he is in Christ. And Christ as this person is his work and his work is redemption and his work is universal redemption. So God is the act of universal redemption. Now, that you see was the very thing that Orthodox, the, the, those that wrote the Creed of Chalcedon were keeping out. They did not pretend, as Bart and many, many liberal critics say, use these Greek categories in order by means of them to understand the relation between God and man exhaustively. They didn't even pretend to do any such thing. They knew, as every Reformed Confession expresses it, that God is incomprehensible and that it is never possible, ever will be possible, by logical penetration to see through the relation of the eternal changeless being and his plan in relation to the temple finite creature of man. What they were doing was this. They were saying they were protecting the Christian story, the incarnation, precisely against the idea that God to be God at all must be changed wholly into the opposite of himself, that he was, has to be a mixture, because then they would lose the whole incarnation and they would lose the whole of redemption. Now, therefore, you see, this is at once the thing that you see developing in this case, and you see how Augustine is struggling with this whole problem for himself. Now, is there any problem before we have our short recess? I'm awful sorry we have the bosses back with us today and we have only five minutes. Yesterday, <laughs> yesterday we took seven minutes. <laughs>